Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Welcome aboard, friends. Interesting times, man. Interesting times. You know, this program is going to be, I've said this before, it's going to become increasingly important. It's going to be increasingly required listening if you're following what's going on in the world. Not from the mainstream media. Everything, according to the mainstream media, is honky-dory. You know, the stock markets, every week it's they're posting all new time highs, uh, which just baffles the mind. There are no fundamentals there. We are in a depression. We are on the cusp of a worldwide depression. But you wouldn't know it. You wouldn't know it. We're all sleepwalking towards the apocalypse. Uh, so I, I, I often just sort of skip the... Uh, uh, the newspapers, but I do, I do enjoy the classified ads. And here's one. I, I just recently posted this, uh, uh, on, uh, my, my Twitter. Uh, I should say the mighty Aphrodite found this. It's a Prince George newspaper. This is the classifieds. Check this out, Tim. Wanted. Someone to go back in time with me. This is not a joke. Joke. P.O. Box 1004. Dash one five five seven Fourth Avenue, Prince George, BC, postal code. You'll get paid after we get back. Must bring your own weapons. Safety not guaranteed. I have only done this once before. Come on, who's who's signing up for that? I I'm I'm the first in line. <laughs> I love time travel. And uh, if you know this guy must be or this woman. Uh, must have served some time at Nellis, I'm guessing, Nellis Air Force Base or Groom Lake or S4. Maybe she got her hands on some Element 115. Remember Bob Lazar and Element 115? Who knows? Uh, wow. That's where you find the good stuff. Not in the front page. Go back to the classifieds and, and examine those very quickly. Uh, in the second half of the show, I'm going to speak with Colin Hall. He's in the, uh, the UK. He just wrote a book. If I can call it a book, it's kind of a scrapbook. It's about 100 pages, and it's called Factor Fiction, The Paris and M6 Crashes. I didn't know anything about the Paris or M6 crashes, but this thing, thing went viral uh, about a year ago. Some uh, motor crashes on the M6 in England and one very similar in Paris. There was some, uh, some talk of some time travel involved in that. So we'll get the scoop from Colin Hall coming up shortly. Uh, but first, I want to talk about the power of mirrors. Why mirrors, you ask? Well, for... Uh, for countless ages, really, uh, mirrors or any reflective surface has has uh, played a prominent role uh, in, in in divination and spirit communication. And I was recently at a friend's place. Uh, they lost uh, someone. They were in the morning stage, the 40-day, working to the, towards the 40-day memorial, and they had covered all the uh, uh, the mirrors in the house. Uh, and uh, we're going to find out what that all means. We're going to do that. With our regular contributor, paranormal investigator extraordinaire, Rosemary Ellen Guiley. She joins us the second Sunday of every month. She's an American researcher, writer on topics related to spirituality, the occult, and paranormal. And she has written 45 books and counting, including 10 encyclopedias. Rosemary, how are you? I'm doing great, Richard, but I'll tell you, there's a lot of strange things going on. I've been out on the road now that the weather's warmed up a bit, investigating cases, I've been getting a lot of contacts from people who have weird things going on in their homes. They have poltergeist activity, shadow figures, nightmares, strange sounds. They don't know what's causing it, and they need help figuring it out and getting rid of it. 
And guess who they come to? You. <laughs> so you're the uh, you're the go-to gal when it comes to all things paranormal, which is why we have you on this show every uh, second Sunday of every month. So I want to go back a few years. I don't know when this book came out. It was The Dark Side of the Paranormal. When was that written? It was actually written over a period of years, and it was a collection of articles. And I brought it out a couple of years ago because uh, I found that my most frequently asked questions fell into the same categories, and I had um, written about them in in books and in articles. I collected them all into the guide to the dark side of the paranormal, um, things that would happen most frequently to people, and it's been a very valuable guide for a lot of individuals. Well, I'll tell you uh, what sort of brought this to mind for me. I knew someone who uh, recently passed away, and we went to visit the family uh, during the uh, the all-important sort of 40 days leading up to the 40-day memorial. And, uh, you know, this is a, a Greek family. All the, the mirrors in the house were covered. Uh, and in one case, the mirror was turned around. And this goes back many, many years, probably, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years, this belief that mirrors somehow hold this this power uh, and that I, I guess the idea is if someone passes away you cover the mirrors because it's believed in some cultures that mirror opens a portal and you could actually do some damage to the deceased's soul like maybe suck their soul into some sort of a vortex or another dimension and then I went back to the book of yours that we just mentioned The Dark Side of the Paranormal and you've written an entire chapter about the power of mirrors so I thought we could get into that a little bit tonight Let's talk about this idea of covering up mirrors when someone passes away. What, did I get that right? Is that what that's all about? Yes, that's a very strong and widespread belief about mirrors. You know, even going back to ancient times, reflective surfaces have been considered to be doorways to the spirit world. In, in, in the ancient times, they used still pools of water or pools of dark liquid like ink to gaze into, to see the gods, to see the dead, to divine the future. And after the advent of um, silvered mirrors, uh, we've still had these lingering beliefs that there's something strange about them, that uh, they open up these channels to the spirit world, and spirits can enter our world through uh, these, these portals. Uh, we have a lot of beliefs about the dead, and you mentioned uh, one of them, you know, concerning what happens to mirrors in a house when someone has died, and especially if a body is uh, in the house uh, before burial. Uh, there are a number of beliefs about mirrors, and, and uh, also that um, if the dead see themselves in the mirror, because it's been believed uh, since ancient times that the, the spirit of a dead person lingers around the body for a while, at least until burial. So one superstition is that if the, a dead person uh, sees himself accidentally in a mirror, it uh, shocks the spirit and it does disrupt uh, his ability then to go into the afterlife. Uh, there are other beliefs that if the dead see themselves in, in mirrors, uh, they will remain in in the house they will not make the transition and they will uh, be a problem then to the living and then there's another belief that uh, when there is a dead person uh, in a home or someone has died and the living see themselves in mirrors uh, it's an omen for their own death 
I know another legend is that one should never look into a mirror at night particularly. Now, this goes back, obviously, before the advent of electricity. But the idea of never looking into a mirror at night while holding a candle, what's that all about? In dim light, things seem to shapeshift in mirrors. If you gaze into a mirror long enough, even in daylight, you have the impression that things in the mirror become distorted, even your face. There is a an exercise in mirror gazing uh, to attempt to see yourselves in past lives, for example, where you uh, allow your face to dissolve and uh, transform itself. Sometimes people are shocked by what they see. But when you use dim light like candlelight, the physical eye becomes fatigued very quickly, and this enables the psychic eye to take over. Uh, so many believe that it's easier to to have um, visions, you know, psychic visions this way by gazing into a mirror. But there's a dark side to mirror gazing as well. And I often find mirrors to be a problem in some of those cases that I was referencing just a few minutes ago where people have strange activity in their homes. I often find mirrors are one of the problems. When people uh, look into mirrors attempting to see themselves or in past lives or to, to contact the dead, they're often not prepared for what they see. Sometimes they might see very distorted faces or ugly faces. And, of course, in the back of some people's minds are fears that the demonic is going to jump out at them and their own imagination can uh, conjure up the image of some horrible-looking, monstrous face. And is there anything to this? I mean, do you subscribe to any of this, or is this simply legend and, and folklore? It certainly is part of folklore, but I do believe that mirrors act as portals to the spirit world. I've seen them in too many problem-haunting cases, and I have come to believe that um, they are a conduit. There's something about mirrors that, from an occult perspective, warps space and time and if there are interdimensional thin spots in a home for example uh, perhaps a badly placed mirror could exacerbate that to open up the doorway Uh, i do believe that we should be very careful about the placement of mirrors in bedrooms Uh, if mirrors indeed are this doorway then uh, we should not see ourselves in mirrors while we sleep When we sleep, we are vulnerable to spirit activity, and many people report visitations at night, uh, especially in the middle of the night. So the prevailing occult wisdom is you should not see yourself in bed uh, in a mirror. You should not have a mirror at the head of the bed, and you especially should not have mirrors at the foot of the bed. The foot of the bed is where people often see apparitions and entities when they make nighttime visitations. Hey, well, listen, you're, with me, you're talking to the converted. The, the last thing I want to see when I wake up in the morning is me. <laughs> so, uh, listen, we'll take a time out. We'll come back. Rosemary Ellen Guiley, paranormal investigator, as we discuss the power of mirrors and the dark side of the paranormal. Right here on The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. This is your last chance. After this, there is no turning back. You take the blue pill. The story ends. You wake up in your bed and believe whatever you want to believe. You take the red pill. You stay in Wonderland. And I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. You want the truth? You can handle the truth. 
The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. We're back with Rosemary Ellen Guiley, and we're sort of dialing it back a few years and discussing one of her previous books, one of, what is it now, 45, 50 books that you've written, uh, Rosemary, uh, The Dark Side of the Paranormal, and one of the chapters in that book, The Power of Mirrors. You know, I remember as a, as a child, one of those games that someone would recommend, you know, you, you go over to a, a sleepover at somebody's house and they'd say, let's play Mary Bloody Mary. And uh, the object of the uh, the exercise was to go into the usually the bathroom. And if you said that three times into the mirror, supposedly you would see this bloody visage staring back at you. And uh, thank God I you know I had the common sense even at you know nine ten eleven years old not to mess with that. But what's the origin of that legend, Bloody Mary? It's pretty difficult to pinpoint the exact origin because there are so many variations of that story, and they've been around for well over uh, a century now that at least that we know of. And the Bloody Mary, the the basic story of the Bloody Mary in the mirror is uh, that a long time ago there was a girl or a young woman named Mary who had a horrible accident. Uh, in today's terms, she's in a car accident in earlier times. It would have been like a buggy accident or something like that. And her face was very um, scarred and mangled and bloody. When she finally saw herself in a mirror, she was so distressed that she went insane. And in in some variations of this story, uh, she actually goes into the mirror looking for her old self and becomes trapped in the mirror. And in her despair and anger, uh, then wreaks havoc upon people who look into a mirror trying to find her. There are other variations of the story as well. It's it's a pretty widespread story. And uh, so... There are rituals for conjuring up Bloody Mary, and it is primarily uh, a teenage game uh, for excitement and thrill that that, um, you go into a darkened room like a bathroom and stand in front of the mirror, uh, sometimes with a candle, and say her name, Bloody Mary, Bloody Mary, Bloody Mary, three times, 13 times, 100 times. Uh, there are different formulas. Sometimes um, it calls for spinning around each time you say the name. And then her bloody face is supposed to appear in the mirror. Well, um, that could be frightening enough for a lot of people, but there are other variations that say she's going to come out of the mirror, she's going to claw up your face, dig your eyeballs out with forks. Uh, and, and even uh, in some movie versions of this story, uh, kill the person who summons her. Yes, that's been portrayed in, in countless uh, movies, horror movies over the years. And, of course, we have Scary Movie 5 coming into the theaters. I'm sure it'll make its presence known in that movie as well. Uh, but the other uh, interesting aspect when it comes to the legend of mirrors in Hollywood depictions is uh, we come around to the vampire. And vampires not being able to see their own reflection in the mirror. Now, was that a creation of Bram Stoker, or does that, too, have its roots you know, even further back in in history. It has a basis in genuine folklore, but it was a fictional invention of Bram Stoker that then became embedded for a long time in the vampire lore. Thankfully, uh, modern fictional vampires can see the reflections now. We really wouldn't be able to live in today's world with so many reflective surfaces. But Stoker took folklore 
about how mirrors steal souls and the vampire is a soulless creature and is cursed and unholy uh, and so uh, casts no reflection in a mirror. And uh, it was a very artful device in earlier times when people didn't have very many mirrors. Uh, but today, of course, it's uh, very obsolete. Well, it's an interesting connection between souls and the mirror. Uh, you know, there was a time when that was sort of a, a basic way of checking whether someone was still alive. You would hold a small, maybe a compact or a mirror up to their mouth, and if they if they fogged the mirror, there was still soul left in the body. They were still breathing, obviously. Well, that's true. And uh, even in ancient times, people worried about uh, the depths of the mirror and you can literally get sucked into a mirror if you gaze into it for a long period of time. And it, it seems to have no depth to it, no end. So uh, it's easy to understand where a lot of these uh, fears and superstitions and bits of folklore arise. You know, one of the most effective uh, forms of divination that, that I like to use is black mirror gazing. And instead of a silver surface, the mirror is... A, a black, and when you gaze into that surface in dim light, such as with candles on either side, then you really are drawn into this um, this black depth that seems to have no bottom to it, and it is easy for the clairvoyant vision to kick in. Is that what they call scrying? It is scrying, yes, and I teach worksh- workshops. I call them um, the necromantium, the, the place to, to contact the dead and coach people on how to use mirror gazing as a way to make some sort of contact with dead loved ones. People have all kinds of experiences. Even if they ask to see someone who's passed over, they may get a spirit guide. I've had extraterrestrials come through, unknown entities uh, of, of unknown origins, and, of course, people seeing into their, their own past in terms of past lives and also into the future. So have you personally had an experience scrying before a a, a blackened mirror? I have. And, in fact, I trained with Raymond Moody on uh, black mirror gazing. Um, My first experience with him was back in the mid-1990s, and uh, I spent a day with him at his uh, home in Alabama learning how to to mirror gaze and, uh, and the purposes that it could be used for. And uh, then I took some more formal training from him again uh, several years ago. I've had um, extraterrestrial entities literally come out of the mirror uh, and stand in the room, all kinds of weird-looking entities. Are you pulling my leg? You ETs actually (laughs) come out of the mirror? They're in three-dimensional form in front of you? Well, it's a clairvoyant vision, and this is uh, a a condition that is reported by other mirror gazers, too. And I think it has to do with the way the physical eyes sort of get out of the way when they they become fatigued by by looking into uh, a surface like this. And the clairvoyant vision, uh, things can seem to be projected out of the mirror into the room, Um, but for me, it's not seeing them with my physical eyes. I'm seeing them on the inner eye, but they feel like they're not in the mirror. They're in the room with me. Right, right. And, and this encounter with this ET, I mean, was it, was it friendly, I hope? Or? Well, it was. And um, actually, it was one of these praying mantis entities. And oh. I, don't like, <laughs> I don't like bugs. 
Um, but this entity was um, non-threatening, and um, with, with it comes a lot of information that's, that's part of the psychic process, too. You, you, you get impressions, you get messages, and uh, it wanted to convey to me, uh, you know, how this was a doorway to other places besides the afterlife. So it was a very interesting experience. Um, I used the Black Mirror to contact my uh, father uh, some years after he died and um, had some visions of him in the mirror. You you actually saw him? Sometimes the, the yes, well yes, in the mirror, and sometimes the the impressions, the psychic visions, seem to be on the mirror's surface. I think what the mirror does is it's a tool that helps you access psychic information. So uh, sometimes people report that the mirror surface begins to ripple and and shift and uh, look like it turns kind of a milky gray, and I've seen that where the the surface actually seems to change. Uh, and you can get fleeting uh, images of people and places, almost like that uh, hypnagogic state of dreaming, which tends to be very kind of jumbled and with lots of voices and, and images in it. Which begs the question, Rosemary, how, how does one know that you haven't sort of hypnotized yourself? It's very difficult to draw the line. And in, in fact, hypnosis is, is a very valuable technique to get people to into an altered state where they can access this information. I do consider it to be uh, a genuine experience that we're not able to have when we're in a different brain wave in waking consciousness. We seem to be able to penetrate into these interdimensional realms and into the afterlife and the spirit world when we shift our brain activity and hypnosis is uh, a very good way to do that. Final question. I mean, you've been involved in countless investigations of hauntings and, and oftentimes uh, you discover that some a certain object has been brought into a home and that object is the source of the, of the problem. And how many instances would you say that problem artifact that is an, an antique or what have you that it's been brought into the house that, that has precipitated these hauntings has been in fact a mirror it's one of the top ten objects uh, dolls are probably number one because a lot of people collect dolls uh, mirrors would definitely be uh, one of the more common objects because people like unusual frames they like old mirrors uh, oftentimes they'll go to second-hand shops looking for inexpensive things. And uh, people decorate their homes with mirrors. When I uh, find mirrors to be a problem, and often it's in the bedroom, uh, simply by relocating the mirror, uh, the, the problem can be alleviated. I usually recommend that, especially if it's something that's been acquired second-hand, that uh, it be removed from the premises altogether. All right, Rosemary. Well, forewarned, forearmed when it comes to mirrors. I mean, they are attractive, but be careful where you buy them and particularly where you place them in the home. Always fascinating and uh, safe travels. Look forward to speaking with you next month. Thank you, Richard. Rosemary Ellen Guiley, VisionaryLiving.com, the website. Check it out. Some great stuff, great information there. Coming up next, a couple of bizarre auto crashes on the M6 and, and uh, in Paris, France. And we'll speak to the British author who's investigated those amazing paranormal claims surrounding those crashes when The Conspiracy Show returns right after this.
the evidence and letting you draw your own conclusions. This is The Conspiracy Show. Boy, do we have a great story for you right now. A number of uh, interesting or bizarre, I should say, car crashes that took place back in 2010 uh, along the M6. This is a motorway in uh, near Birmingham, England, and a similar uh, crash that took place in Paris, France. So imagine you've got these multi-vehicle uh, car pileups, and the cars at the sort of the the center of this this uh, this carnage, they didn't find any drivers in there. So there's this whole sort of paranormal aspect uh, to these car crashes that have become known as the Paris and M6 crashes, uh, and it's become sort of legendary. Now, up until a couple of weeks ago, I had never heard of these, but now you're going to get the whole story from a gentleman who joins us on the line from uh, the UK. Colin Hall is the author of Fact or Fiction? The Paris and M6 Crashes. Colin, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. Thank you very much, Richard. Thank you for having me. So, uh, let's just set the scene here. 2010, roughly, I think June, along the M6 a carriageway in Birmingham, what happens? Well, in truth, actually, it was late 2009 uh, ah. in Birmingham. And uh, what, what obviously caught my attention were these reports that were on the Internet. But more specifically was the fact that the lead vehicles in that crash um, contained no evidence of bodies. No blood, no tissue, nothing. Nothing at all. There and was, there was and these, were, these were horrible wrecks, right? These cars were destroyed. Well, again, um, according to witness statements, uh, they, they were bereft of passengers, uh, bereft of drivers, and they created what is known as the M6 paranormal crash. Something else that was uh, interesting that was caught on closed circuit uh, TV that these, of course, lots of uh, security cameras in England. What did what did uh, people claim to see on the security camera? Well, they claimed to see a bright light, um, a bright light that flashed, um, and that was uh, spotted seconds before the actual crash itself. I mean, that that is the the reports that we read, and as I understand it. And uh, there was something else interesting. One of the, the trucks, one of the lorries, as you say, in the UK that was involved in the crash, something to do with its tachometer. Tell me about that. Well, again, a, a tachometer is a, is a piece of kit that tracks the movement of a, a lorry, an HGV truck. It tracks various different functions. Um, this one showed no uh, slowdown. It just stopped. It, it, was a, it was as if the engine had been switched off. There was no human uh, intervention. Stop. Flatline. So... This obviously must have had uh, the investigators, the police, puzzled. So, But how did this story begin to sort of leak out that there was this seemingly paranormal aspect to it? Some were even suggesting time travelers may have been involved. Well, this is where we come to the reporter Mark Collins and his reports. Um, to date, his are the only reports that have ever circulated about it. But during 2010, I believe he released about seven reports, starting with the M6 crash and then progressing on to Paris. He named uh, an individual called Detective Roger Silverton, who allegedly heads up some form of special investigation branch down in London. 
Um, and through an anonymous source, he was, uh, as he claims, uh, able to garner significant amounts of information that inspired him to write these press reports that we read. All right, uh, Colin, hold on. We'll take a time out. When we come back, we'll dig further into the Paris and M6 crashes with the author of Fact or Fiction, Colin Hall. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Don't go away. The world is being pulled over your eyes. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. We are back with Colin Hall. He is the author of Fact or Fiction. The Paris and M6 crashes here on the conspiracy show. He's on the line from his home in England. So uh, you were you were talking about the the um, the uh, police that was uh, the, the policeman that was uh, sort of cited as a source by reporter uh, Mark Collins. Tell me a little bit more about this uh, this police officer. Well, there's not a huge amount I can say, apart from the fact I've got his name. His name is Detective Roger Silverton. Um, he is alleged to have headed up some form of special investigation team that are based in London. Um, there are very mixed messages about him. Um, as the stories progress, as the press releases keep on coming out, um, there is a complete rebuff about anything paranormal happening. And in fact, the claim is that it could have actually been an insurance fraud. So it took a turn from the strange to the even stranger, one might say. And how were the newspapers at the time reporting this? Did they make mention, or the mainstream media, did they make mention of the fact that there were no passengers, or drivers, I guess for that matter, in some of the vehicles that were involved in this horrible pileup? Well, that was the interesting thing. The mainstream media seemed to be largely unimpressed. What I found, which is what got me interested, was a, a huge plethora of websites covering the story. Um, and then all of a sudden it broke onto one of the big local um, UK newswires uh, publication called This is Staffordshire. It went to every single county pretty much in the UK. And it became known as the, the Milky Way Motorway. And combined with the 14 Times report that, that concluded that this was modern folklore, um, I, I think I was thoroughly hooked at that point. Were you following this? I mean, did you become interested in this because you were sort of interested in it from a sociological aspect in terms of the way, you know, legends are propagated in the media and, 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 and the alternative media and so forth? Or were you sort of a, a paranormal buff who thought that there might be something to this story? I think I came at it from both angles. Um, I think the more I explored it, what struck me was the sheer amount of debate and discussion online that clearly um, 14 times said, you know, this, this is modern folklore. And it fascinated me how a story could, I think at one point, have something like two million pages indexed um, discussing this. And, and it went from the, this is absolutely cast iron and it's truth, it's a, it's a cover-up, all the way over to this is pure fantasy, um, with many in between. And then, of course, we had the video that came out, which, which kind of divided even more opinion. What... What evidence, tangible evidence, aside from this mere hearsay that there were no drivers or passengers in some of the vehicles, uh, what evidence is there to support that? Well, 
Well, you've hit the nail on the head. I mean, apart from this this video that was um, leaked onto the internet in early 2011 that purported to be of the actual crash scene, there is no evidence. There's no physical evidence. There's no police reports. There's nothing out there that we can hang our hat on and say this definitely happened. Tell us about um, that video. Tell us about the video. What do we see in that video? Well, what we see in the video is uh, it's the perspective from a particular vehicle that drives past the scene of the crash. And we see a selection of vehicles that are parked up. We see people out of the vehicles. We come to this big lorry. And then, of course, we come to this line of fire, which ties in with the original report that Mark Collins wrote. Now, of course, when you look at the video, the production quality behind the video suggests that whoever put that together, um, you know, there was there's something about the video when you read it or you watch it, should I say, that doesn't quite hang true, yet someone's gone to an awful lot of trouble if it isn't accurate to try and replicate it. And there are things in there like no oncoming traffic, for example, that makes me wonder what on earth this video was for. Well, I mean, obviously there was a crash, correct? I mean, that much we know. There was a crash in and around that period of time, yes. Uh, there definitely was a crash. Whether this was the crash or not is what we don't know. Ah, now, in the video, do do we see these uh, these vehicles that were near the front of the, uh, the the crash? Do we see these vehicles up close? Do we do we do we do we see the camera in, inside? Do we get a vantage point to see that there is no one in those in those vehicles. Well, we do, because, I mean, the, the people that were videoing it uh, simply just sped up and drove off. They didn't like what they saw. They were spooked, in effect. Um, of course, it's not every day that you see a line of fire across a, uh, a carriageway of a motorway. And then when you go to see the, the vehicles expecting to see some sort of carnage, there's nobody in the cars. Well, it's shot in the black, in the pitch black, so we, we're limited as to what we can see, but we, there is no evidence that anyone's in those vehicles. And all we do see is people pointing at those vehicles. So one has suspicions that they're pointing there for a reason, although quite what we don't know. Colin Hall is with us, the author of Fact or Fiction, The Paris and M6 Crashes. Okay, so let's just hop over the uh, the English Channel here for a moment and talk about what happened in Paris. A similar crash, similar time frame? Similar crash. It was... Well, approximately four or five months later, it happened near the Eiffel Tower, um, which had its own sort of bearings because obviously the, the French are very sensitive about anything that happens near their major tourist uh, attractions. Bright lights were seen, apparently witnesses uh, were claiming that people momentarily disappeared. Um, and then perhaps the strangest thing was towards the, the, the latter stages of Mark Collins' reports was the uh, allegations that someone broke into the morgue and injected some of the dead bodies. Injected them with what? Uh, we don't know. And I, I actually, during my research, because uh, I, I went into this with a very open mind, uh, I managed to get hold of somebody who worked for IO9 who wrote an article about blood um, and, and post-mortem. And, and they said, we cannot think, obviously, apart from, from the obvious treatment of their body, why somebody would inject those bodies. Now, in this crash, there were fatalities. I mean, let's go back to the M6 crash for a moment. Were there any t fatalities in that crash? None that we're aware of, no. Okay, but we, so we, we do know that there was a fatal car crash in Paris. There were bodies in a morgue. Were there other witnesses? Did anyone else in the Paris crash come forward to talk about it? 
Uh, no, in fact, quite the opposite. When I was in Paris researching it, I, um, I was given the cold shoulder on two occasions, which, which made me think until I corresponded with somebody in Paris who um, was ex-military, and they suggested that anything to do with the Eiffel Tower, anything in that locale, um, is very much kept quiet, very sensitive. Interesting, interesting. Was there a video of the Paris crash? No, there was no video. So how did the two get linked up then? Uh, who was responsible for making the linkage between M6 and the Paris crash near the Eiffel Tower? Well, this is where our intrepid reporter, Mark Collins, uh, can be. Uh, we can point the finger at him because he was the one, again, who wrote the reports about the Parisian accident. We also get mention of Detective Silverton. Apparently there was some form of communication between the two uh, police departments. So that is where they established the link. The MO, if you like, the, the flashing lights, people disappearing, uh, bore a striking resemblance to what was alleged to have happened on the M6 several months earlier. How did the uh, the time travel uh, aspect get I- involved? I mean, explain the linkage between time travel and these two crashes. I, I think the, the, the fact that people appeared and disappeared in Paris and completely disappeared on the M6, um, I think the obvious conclusion was, where did they go? Um, I believe that a lot of what came out of Mark Collins's reports, which is what are going through my book, led people down a path to believe that. Um, and that's where I found the, the sociological aspect of this very interesting because Mark Collins was, was writing reports claimed based on, on sources that he had, including this detective Silverton, um, and was effectively, effectively calling the shots as to what may or may not have happened at these alleged incidents. So in other words, uh, if there were time travelers uh, driving in a vehicle along the M6 or, or in Paris near the Eiffel Tower uh, and uh, realized that they were about to crash in order to avoid a certain death or, or serious injury, they essentially uh, time traveled out of the vehicle. Is that the idea? That is. That is exactly, you know, I mean, you've probably hit the nail on the head. And this white light uh, that was seen... Was it on a closed-circuit TV on the M6, this strange white flash across the carriageway? Again, allegedly it was, yes, right. although the footage has never, ever been seen. The only footage that I've ever seen of that crash was the one on the actual M6 itself on the, on the YouTube, uh, on that YouTube clip. And again, reports of a white flash in Paris as well? That's correct, yes. And that, I think, is the linkage between the two incidents. The MO is identical. What, what, do we, what else do we know about this uh, reporter, Mark Collins? Who is he? Well, in my investigations, I found out that he had written for a website called Volo Legal, um, which seems to be a very small um, legal website that now seems to be largely defunct. I believe he had aspirations of being some form of a journalist, and I believe that he is apparently jobbing as a journalist in and around the northwest of England, but nobody's ever seen him. Um, there was a, a, a report from one of the restaurateurs that I uh, met in Paris, or should I say a, a small description of somebody who he believed could have been the elusive Mark Collins. But aside from that, no, I've had very little communication with him. Um, he clearly has disowned all these reports. He claimed that it was, uh, should we say, not good for him. But that is it. 
I'd like you to just take a moment and, and, and explain uh, a little bit about how your book is laid out. It's a very interesting presentation, fact or fiction, the Paris and M6 crashes, and, and, and uh, it, it's quite actually lovely to, to look at. I mean, it's it's not just, you know, a lot of text and, and maybe some, some photographs and so forth. Explain uh, the visual presentation of your book. I, th- I think probably the best way to look at the book is it's a window into my mind and my thinking. And, and in this book are bits of paper and notes. Uh, there's scribblings, there's sketches. Um, there's, you know, for example, I go into the multiverse universe, uh, the multiverse theorem by Michio Kaku. Um, we look at other famous people such as Ronald Mallet, who are named in the 1 and 26 blog and in the code that has been connected to the whole thing. So what I tried to do was take the readers through a process of thinking that I've gone through whilst I've been writing the book. But I'm mindful that nobody wants to sit there and read 100 pages of prose. That's boring. What I've tried to do is let people get under my skin and see what captured my imagination. Um, it's very much an open story, this. You know, it's, it's, you know it, well, I don't know. There is no conclusion at the end of my book. And I've said to people, you know, get on the blogs, talk about it, talk to me about it, because I don't have the answer. I just have the evidence that I've collected and put together in this book. Uh, Very quickly, we don't have a lot of time. uh, As I speak with Colin Hall, the author of Fact or Fiction, The Paris and M6 Crashes, uh, explain very briefly what this one of 26 uh, uh, code was all about. Well, there's, there's a Twitter feed and there's a blog post or a blog spot, one in 26. Um, by the time I got to it, they were both in code. Uh, I've spent a lot of time trying to get these codes cracked. I can't. But they named strange things. They named the locations of various places across the planet, including Fukushima, including the Falkland Islands. But also they named places like the Galley Restaurant in Santa Monica. Um, I have absolutely no idea what the relevance is of that. They talk about historical figures as well. For example, Ronald Mallet, and then the famous writer Louis-Sébastien Mercier, who wrote a book about time travel. Ah, I, Ron, Ron Mallet happens to be a, a, a good acquaintance of mine, maybe even a friend. Uh, I've never met him face-to-face, but he's been on my radio show a number of times. And uh, interesting, so he showed up in those codes as well. Um, so, I mean... It, what is your? Uh, can you speculate? Do you think those the, the people that were contributing to these codes may have, in fact, themselves been the time travelers, the people who avoided uh, injury in these crashes? It may well have been. I mean, you know, I've always said that the, any kind of code that is that clever and that bulletproof is the best code of all. It's it's openly accessible; anyone can read it. But I, I have failed to find anybody who can crack it. How do people get a hold of Fact or Fiction, the Paris and M6 crashes, Colin? Uh, they can go to Marcosia, to their website. It's also for sale on Amazon. It'll be for sale on Kindle, Nook, Kobo, uh, and iBooks come next week. So, yeah, they can get it pretty much in most places. Colin, it's a fascinating uh, a fascinating story. And if uh, you know if there's any postscripts uh, that you can share with us in the coming uh, weeks, months, or even years, uh, we'll definitely have you on and uh, chat again. Thank you. Thank you. Colin Hall, Fact or Fiction, The Paris and M6 Crashes. And uh, we just have enough uh, time. I don't think we have time to work in some uh, some phone calls, but I just wanted to share a couple of stories that I have posted on the In the News section at richardserrett.com. Uh, of course, recently we just celebrated the, 
I call it the Catholic Easter, which is a kind of a misnomer. Obviously, uh, Protestants also celebrated uh, Easter uh, a couple of weeks ago. Uh, the Eastern Orthodox Easter is coming up. It's actually, I believe, on May the 1st uh, this year or the very end of April. It's as late as it can be, and I've never quite understood why. Um, there's such a disparage or a, a discrepancy rather between the two Easter's and some, uh, some years they fall on the same, at the same time. However, uh, every year around this time, I usually work into the discussion at some point the Shroud of Turin, which I believe, uh, to be the actual burial cloth of Jesus Christ and further that it, in fact, uh, contains evidence of some sort of physical resurrection. Now, scientists have been back and forth on the shroud. Of course, we had the uh, the carbon-14 uh, uh, tests back in the uh, the late 1980s, uh, 1988, in fact, which supposedly uh, dated the shroud or the linen, the linen cloth, somewhere between 1260 and 1390. Uh, and for many scientists, that was case closed and proved, for them at least, that the shroud was, in fact, a forgery, a medieval forgery. Uh, I never believed that, and uh, a, a number of pieces of ev- evidence have come out in the last five, six years, uh, or even going back a little bit further, uh, that highly suggests the carbon-14 tests performed in the late 80s were faulty. They were, in fact, using a sample of the linen or a piece of the linen uh, which had been contaminated by fire. Uh, in fact, some researchers speculate that the sample that was pulled uh, for the carbon-14 test was, in fact, a piece of uh, linen that had been woven into the into the tapestry or into the rather into the uh, the shroud um, in the Middle Ages after the shroud had been damaged by fire. So now we have this uh, report. Uh, that's been carried in the, uh, the the Telegraph in England, suggesting that the shroud is not a medieval forgery. The Turin shroud, long claimed, um, has long in, uh, been claimed rather, but it could, could but could in fact date from the time of Christ's death, according to a new book. Experiments conducted by scientists at the University of Padua in northern Italy have dated the shroud to ancient times. This is the latest now, a few centuries before and after the life of Christ. Many Catholics believe the 14-foot-long linen cloth, which bears the imprint of the face and body of a bearded man, was used to bury Christ's body when he was lifted down from the cross after being crucified some 2,000 years ago. The analysts, or the analysis, rather, is published in, in a new book, Il Mistero della Sindone, or The Mystery of the Shroud, by Giulio Fanti, a professor of mechanical and thermal measurement at Padua University. The tests will revive the debate about the true origins of one of Christianity's most prized but mysterious relics and are likely to be hotly contested by skeptics. Scientists, including Professor Fanti, used infrared light and spectroscopy, the measurement of radiation intensity through wavelengths to analyze fibers from the shroud, which is kept in a special climate-controlled case in Turin. The tests dated the age of the shroud to between 300 B.C. and 400 A.D. The experiments were carried out on fibers taken from the shroud during a previous study in 1988 when they were conducted to carbon-14 date dating. Those tests 
conducted by laboratories in Oxford, Zurich, and Arizona, appeared to back up the theory the shroud was a clever medieval forgery, suggesting it dated from 1260 to 1390. But those results were in turn disputed on the basis that they may have been skewed by contamination by fibers from cloth that was used to repair the relic when it was damaged by the fire in the Middle Ages. Mr. Fanti, a Catholic, said his results were the fruit of 15 years of researcher of research. He said the carbon-14 dating tests carried out in 1988 were false because of laboratory contamination. So, the debate continues. It is not case closed. And I remain convinced the Shroud of Turin is, in fact, the burial cloth of Jesus Christ. Thanks, Tim Spreen, for production. Back next week, Patty Greer on Crop Circles and Ron Patton, the editor of Paranoia Magazine. In the meantime, don't be afraid. Nothing concealed that won't be revealed, nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home.